Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders, about to talk about tarantula tacos. Okay, no, that really isn't the point of this episode. However, I would feel like I have to bring this one up because last episode we went through an article about tarantulas with misinformation. Um, a couple mornings ago, I woke up and what was making the national news was a restaurant in Mexico that was serving up Brocky Pelma Wagen's tacos. They were basically... I think it was like 27 or $29 a taco. Now, obviously, that's a lot of money for a taco. And unfortunately, they put it on social media, and the Mexican government got a hold of it, saw that they were serving them, and now they're in trouble because they are a protected species. So they came in, seized, it sounds like, four dead tarantulas that they were going to serve on tacos. Now, I love Mexican food. Real Mexican food. I, I worked in a school district for a long time where I was fortunate enough that I had students that... Uh, Parents would cook actual Mexican cuisine, and it's fantastic, but they don't generally eat tarantulas. As a matter of fact, most of my students couldn't stand tarantulas, and um, I can't, I could not fathom eating a bug in the first place. I understand that in some countries, however, this is something that they find that's what they eat. I mean, there's pictures all online if you look it up, but sometimes I get the videos come up on my YouTube channel of people eating tarantulas. I do understand that in some places they're not seen as pets, they're seen as a food source, I get that, but this was just one of those situations of somebody, I guess they serve other bugs at the restaurant, like grasshoppers and things of that nature, and it's kind of like a cool novelty, hey, come here and eat a tarantula, which I just don't get. I mean, it's just, it's wasteful of the animal. It's like, who wants to spend $27 for a taco? I've had some great tacos before, but I can't think of any that I would spend 27 for. I had some really good fish tacos not that long ago, but... 27 for one taco to eat a tarantula? I don't know. So anyway, I thought that was kind of interesting first thing in the morning. Again, it's going to be kind of fun because my news feed that comes up now also includes any tarantula or spider news that makes it to national media. So I've been getting some really cool stories that are kind of fun to discuss. So well, I guess these guys won't be serving the tarantula tacos anymore. So uh, for those of you who are hoping to travel down south of the border and eat a Vagans, sorry, it's not going to happen. So anyway, the podcast today is going to be about how to maintain large collections of tarantulas. I think for a lot of us in the hobby, we get to a point where we realize how many animals there are out there. And there's a, there's a running joke that it's addictive, that's an addictive hobby. And I think some of us go from just getting into the hobby and having, you know, a couple to next thing you know, you're looking down, you have 50 of them, even larger than that. I talked to somebody who it was kind of neat because it was one of the first people I started corresponding with when I started doing the Tom's Big Spiders website. And at this point, they had been just getting into the hobby, had picked up a couple spiders. And he's like, yeah, talk about with my wife. She's really good. She's letting me get, you know, two or three, but max five. And I'm like, you watch, buddy. There's going to be, it's an addictive hobby. You're going to end up with a lot more. Well, I think he's up around 70 something now. And we kind of joke about the fact that I did try to warn him so he can't blame me for this because I get a lot of people to say, well, you showed me this new species and I had to get it. Don't blame me. I try to warn everybody. It's very, very addictive hobby. And if you're the type of person that has that collector gene in you, and I happen to be one of those people that loves collecting different things or somebody that likes learning about things. There's so much to offer as far as things you can learn. You get used to one species. You want to learn about a new species. Once you learn about the species, you want to pick up the species and on and on and on and on. And I think a lot of people end up amassing large collections very, very quickly to the point where they get themselves kind of backed into a corner and they go, oh my gosh, I might have gone a little too overboard on this. So this one is inspired by, it was suggested by my buddy Bill Miner, who I've corresponded with before, who said, hey, Tom, you know, basically we're talking about things advanced 
advanced keepers could use. And he was asking about how you would maintain a large collection, especially for people that just kind of got into the hobby. And after, you know, several months have got this huge collection, but they're kind of at that point where they realize they might have grown it a little faster than they probably should have. And I do think I have some tips and some things that when folks become cognizant of the fact that they're kind of accelerating to the point where they might be getting ahead of themselves as far as the size of the collection, or they're taking a step back and going, oh my gosh, I now have a hundred of these. How do you keep up with this? I think I can offer some advice. And luckily for me, you know, personally speaking, this isn't my first time with a large collection of animals. When Billy and I first got our first home together, we ended up getting into the snake hobby quite heavily. And at one point I had, I believe, over 40 snakes. We, once again, we had a bedroom that wasn't being used, so it was called the snake room. And at that point, I did amass quite a large collection. It used to be, you know, we'd have people over, friends and family, and they all wanted to go in the snake room. It was like a little mini zoo. But I did learn a lot of valuable lessons because I did pick up quite a bit. It, it took me a few years to get up to that point. But it was a large collection. It did take a lot of time, and snakes do require a lot more cleaning than tarantulas do and a lot more day-to-day maintenance. So it, it was a little more difficult, I think, with the you know snakes and reptiles than it was with spiders. So I think I was a little better equipped when I got into the tarantula hobby, like I'd been through some of this before. So here are some things I think personally, and again, for some people out there, they might think this is totally common sense. For me, I actually sat down and thought about it, and there are some things I probably would have done differently going through this hobby, again, because I did pick up a lot in a short amount of time. You know, I joke that when I first started really getting into the hobby and investigating all the species that are out there, I turned to Billy and I go, you know, I could see myself having a couple dozen of these. And now I think I'm at 150 something at my highest. It was 170. So it went well beyond that. But there are some things that I think people, when you start realizing, when you're putting together your wish list, and when you realize you have the money and you have the space and you have the time to do this, there are some things you can be thinking about as you move ahead to make your life a lot more simple as you start picking up more and more tarantulas. So I think the first thing that you need to really give a lot of thought to, and this is a part where a point where for some people, unfortunately, it's going to mean limiting that the size of your collection right off the bat, because let's call it as it is. We can collect things. We can collect toys. We can collect CDs. We can collect movies. We can collect stamps. All of those things are inanimate objects. They're, they don't require care. So if you decide you're bored with your stamp collection, or you decide you've gotten too many stamps. I don't even know where I got in stamp collection. Let's do CDs. It sounds a little more normal. Say you've got a huge CD collection, you've gotten to the point where I don't have any more room for it, Well, then you put them aside and you don't deal with them for a while, that's fine. It's not going to hurt anybody. You can box them up, put them in the attic, never look at them again. Totally fine. Animals, it's a different ballgame. They need care. You need to make sure you're maintaining the correct level of care for them or else you basically cross that line from being a collector into almost a hoarder or an abuser of animals, and you don't want to get to that point. So I think space is something you need to be very clear on right off the bat. You need to sit down with your significant other, and I have some people that will do the, oh, I don't need to talk to her. I'm, you know, I, I want to get tarantulas. I get tarantulas. I don't need to tell my husband. Guys, if you're going to be, and again, I'm not here to give relationship advice, but I do think it's important that if you're going to keep tarantulas that you do okay it with the person you're with and make sure that they are comfortable with it and comfortable with as many as you plan to get. And I also think it's important at this time to kind of lay out where are they going to be. If you're going to keep them in your living room, that's probably going to limit the amount of space that you have. If you're going to keep them in a bedroom, in a closet, wherever it may be. If you're fortunate like me that you have kind of a room that you can't use as a bedroom or anything, so you just kind of claim it for your hobby and your wife just goes along with you. 
you just need to lay out where is this going to, where are these animals going to be kept? And it needs to be something that you both agree with. So if it's going to be the closet, if it's going to be the bedroom, it's going to be a living room. If you're going to have an extra room, obviously you're going to be able to get a larger collection. But you don't want to get yourself or find yourself in the predicament where you've gotten more animals than you can keep in the spot that you originally planned on. And now you're getting into arguments over, well, honey, I'm just going to put five of them in our bedroom because I'm out of room. You don't want to get to that point. So you do want to kind of... If you've got a closet to work with, obviously you're going to eventually have adult tarantulas that need larger enclosures. You're not going to be able to have a huge collection. That's something that needs to be considered off the bat before you go on your tarantula buying spray. I think I've talked to people before that have gotten to a point where they're like, yeah, I've got to start getting rid of some of these because unfortunately I've, I've got too many. I've got ones I need to rehouse and I haven't been able to rehouse them yet because I have no place to put them. That's a bad situation to be in. That's, that's where you start feeling overwhelmed. The hobby is causing you stress. And remember, the point of hobbies, as far as I'm concerned, is to be something you do to alleviate stress. They're your happy place. They're something you do after a bad day's work. You go home, you feed some tarantulas, you rehouse, you stare at them with flashlights, whatever you may do. But they're supposed to be something that brings joy, not more stress to your life. So if you get to a point where suddenly you've got a bunch of things that are in tiny little enclosures that you really want to rehouse, but you know the wife's going to get mad at you or the husband's going to get mad at you because if you rehouse them, you're going to need to take them out of that closet you both agreed upon that would be the place you kept your tarantulas that puts you in a bad spot. So right off the bat, rule number one, when you see yourself starting to blow up, I'd actually say when you get into the hobby, when you get your first tarantula and it's okay with everybody in the house, right then and there, there should be a quick discussion about where they will be kept and that's it. I've said many times that Billy and I, when we start getting into this, I have that one bedroom uh, and that's it. That's where I keep my tarantulas. I'm not supposed to go out of the bedroom. Now, Billy's awesome. I'm sure if I went, well, I want to stick... The M. Balfouri communal in the living room, she would probably go along with it, but I do need my limitations or else the entire house would probably be filled with these guys. You know, she keeps an eye on the money. She keeps an eye on what I'm, you know, putting and where, what comes into the house, and I need that. So that's what we agreed upon. That's what I have to stick to. So right off the bat, figuring out how much space you got is imperative. Okaying it with your mate, okaying a contingency plan if you think you might go over it. And there's a point where you realize you've got to rehouse a bunch of things coming up, maybe in the next year or so, and you're looking at be like, man, when these guys grow up, I'm going to be out of room. Then you need to start talking about this stuff ahead of time so you're not keeping them in, in crummy conditions so that you can keep more spiders. That's not how the hobby should work. Again, they are living animals and they deserve a certain level of care. Next thing, I would encourage people. Now, this is a tough one because I've gone through this. I currently have a garage. My son, Ron, and I went out the other day to do some cleaning in the garage, which is a disaster basically because of me and all my spider stuff. But we took all the old cages that I've used that were out of circulation and took them out, hosed them down, cleaned them out, dried them in the sun. I have about 120 unused containers out there, various things that I have discarded or just haven't been using because I've graduated to something different. Part of the fun of the hobby is finding new enclosures. A lot of us do it. We go and do Hobby Lobby, we go into Michaels, we go into Walmart, we go into Target, we go on Amazon, we find something to go, ooh, clear, clear plastic container. This will be great. If I put some holes in it, it would be good for the terrestrials, or this would be good for arboreals, or this would be good for juveniles, or this would be good for slings. We all do it. And what ends up happening a lot of times is you go out, you buy a bunch of things that you think you like, and then a little ways down the road, you decide they're not working out all that well. Or what happens quite a bit is you find a certain type of enclosure that you like. You're like, I'm going to use this for all my juveniles. It's stackable. It's clear. It's beautiful. And then you buy a bunch of them. You get some more spiders. You're like, oh, I'll just go pick up some more. And they stop making them. Sterilite is notorious 
for selling different types of, of Sterilite containers in different markets. So the Midwest may have something different than New England may have. In many instances, they, they come up with these new sets of stackable things, and then they discontinue them. There was a line they had a few years ago that I absolutely love. They came in about four very convenient sizes, and after a while, I couldn't find them anywhere. I tried to buy them on Amazon. It was ridiculously expensive, so I moved away from them. So it is part of the hobby to try to figure out what you're going to use. However, where I've run into trouble personally in my collection is sometimes you will find something you think is going to work great, and then you go to replace all of you go, you know what, I'm going to move all my juveniles to these stackable containers, and then you find out, guess what, they actually take more room up than the ones you had before. So now you're left with a situation where you were trying to redo your room to make more space, you had these new enclosures you wanted to use, and now you don't have as much space as you did before. This happened to me about two years ago. I switched over. I had this great idea to switch over to a certain type of enclosure. It was the extra large critter keeper. And I went and bought like two bulk boxes of them. I think it was like 12 enclosures total. And the whole point was I had it in my mind that they'd be clearer, they'd be more beautiful. And I was using the Sterilite hanging file boxes for my piece of Letheria, which I think work great, but they're not very clear. They're milky. So I was going to replace those out. Now, I had a system, and I had particularly bought shelving that would allow me to, on the top rows of these shelves, to stack these guys too deep. So the Sterilite containers, I could fit two rows of four on each shelf, which was perfect. It kept all my pokies. They looked nice. They were stackable. So anyway, I switched over to the extra large creator keepers and I did a bunch of rehousings in one weekend we were all excited like all oh, these look beautiful everything went well and then I went to put them on the shelf and realized they were about an inch bigger taller than the other ones and they wouldn't fit in stacks of two so now I basically got myself in a spot where I had just decreased the amount of cages I could put on those shelves by eight total so now I had eight cages large cages that I had to figure out what the heck to do with it was a bit of a nightmare so my point in this is when you start getting big into the hobby, you have to start figuring out what you want to use as cages so that you kind of have a good idea of what type of space you'll be taking up as your collection grows. If you're the type to switch your enclosures a lot, this can be problematic as you're going to have something all planned out, fit nice. You're going to have your room set up, the cages stacked nicely. You know exactly where everything's going to go. And then you switch it up and suddenly you have less room. So you want to start giving some thought early on. And this is something I wish I had done because I wouldn't have all these empty cages in my garage find something that works for your terrestrial your adult terrestrials find something that works for your adult arboreals find something that works for juvenile terrestrials and your juvenile arboreals and then of course your slings and try to figure out what you're going to use ahead of time because that'll make it easier to plan when you start getting more and more animals because i think a lot of us fall into this trap where we have a couple big ones and they're not taking up a lot of room. And then we get into slings. We go, all right, you know what, I'm ready. I'm going to get some slings. So you buy a bunch of slings. And when you buy slings, you realize they're so tiny and their cages are so tiny that you can keep a lot of animals. So suddenly you might have started off with, you know, two adults and a juvenile. Now you have two adults, a couple juveniles, and about 20 slings. And that's when the collection really starts to explode. And for a while, it's fine because they stack, you know, you get a nice little shelf. You put it up. You have all your little containers lined up. You have 20 little sling enclosures going across, and it looks great. But Obviously, some of those species, if you get into the fast-growing species like Pisolotheria, like Salmopeus, like uh, Formictopus, Sturmes, or Therophosa, things of that nature, those grow very, very quickly. So 
One month, you're going to have a bunch of sling enclosures. A couple months down the road, you're going to have a bunch of juvenile enclosures, which take up a lot more space. And then some of these species, within a year, you're going to have to break out the adult enclosures. And that's where you start running into the, uh uh-oh, I've got a mess here. I've got too many spiders. Because suddenly, that one little shelf you had with your two adult enclosures, now you have to put 10 on it. So start thinking ahead of time. Give a little extra thought. If you think you're the type of person that's going to get sucked into this hobby like a lot of us do and you're going to end up with 50, 100, 150, whatever it may be, start giving some thought. Do some research ahead of time and figure out what you want to use as enclosures for those two types of species. And you got a fossorial, you can usually use the same type as a boreal in many instances. What are you going to use for the different species? What are you going to have on hand? And start preparing ahead of time. When you have slings and you know they're going to grow quickly, start giving thought to what you're going to put them in next. So it's not like, "Uh uh-oh, this one's outgrown this, and now I've got to figure out what I'm going to use for juveniles. Have something ready. Because what I do right now, and I've finally gotten to this point, and it has taken me years is I know what I'm putting things in when it's time to rehouse them. I go to my garage and go, all right, I have a juvenile that's going in this clear. I've been using these clear boxes by, I think Mainstay makes one and another company does two. They're the exact same boxes. Somebody stole somebody else's design, but they're hinge. They're beautiful, clear acrylic, and they work great for juveniles and small ter- smaller terrestrials. I now know when something gets to that juvenile stage, gets a little bit bigger, they're going in one of these. I now know when my slings get a little bigger and it's time to get them out of the little vials that I have these little clear acrylic things that stack, they're clear, they're, they look great on a shelf, and they, I know exactly where they fit, so I know where I'm going with it. That's something you want to start thinking about and planning ahead of time. If you're sitting there right now looking at you know, 25, 30, 40 slings, start thinking about what they're going to go into and plan ahead of time. There's nothing to keep you from buying enclosures before they're ready for them and keeping them on hand and ready. It makes things a lot easier when you have a larger collection and takes away some of the stress of planning on the fly like, oh, this one's got to go. It probably should have gone a long time ago into a new cage, but I don't have anything for it. I also think it keeps you out of that situation where you're keeping tarantulas in small cramped quarters because you're not quite sure what to do with them yet. So that one kind of goes along with knowing what your space is, start figuring out what you're going to use for your enclosures. Shelving's another thing. I, I messed myself up twice now in the hobby with switching up what I was using for shelving. Originally, I had shelves that you put in the wall. You would put the metal braces in, screw them into your joists, and uh, put the shelving over it. And I used that for a couple years, few years actually. Then I switched to buying like the rack shelving. Now I'm going back to the other ones, and the reason is now I know exactly what I'm using for enclosures, so I know what spaces I have, I know how to space them apart. So basically what happened was I would have them on shelves, and you want to use space as best you can. If you buy a rack shelving unit, and the enclosures you get will only stack too deep and leave like five or six inches on the top of it, that's wasted space for a lot of us with larger collections. You want something that allows you to adjust the distance between the shelves so that if you switch up your enclosure style and it's an inch off or whatever, you're not stuck and having to undo everything. So that would be something I encourage people. I've seen some people that use the track shelving system where you put the tracks up and then you can adjust the arms that come out and hold the shelves into place. It can be pricey. I just looked into that this summer and it was very expensive. It was going to cost me about 400 bucks total to do what I wanted to do. So instead, I went with just buying the cheaper braces and measuring. I know what I'm using now so I can plan ahead. But I think figuring out, again, how much space you have, what containers you're going to use, and then that allows you to figure out what you're going to use for your rack systems, whether it be something that's kind of you can't adjust it, that's fine, but just know sometimes you can waste some space in those 
or if you get track shelving, those work great. Or if you just buy the ones where you put up individual shelvings and you know the dimensions of your enclosures, you know the dimensions of what you need and therefore you can plan accordingly and not have to worry about a few months down the road having to change up all your shelves again, which I've had to do several times. So trying to figure out, you know, look online, look at what collectors are using and, and ask. If worst case scenario, go and say, hey, what are you using? How do those work for you? Because I'll tell you right now that some of the things I'm using, I probably wouldn't recommend to people going ahead only because I realize they don't utilize space very well. A lot of what you're going to end up doing if you get a larger collection is doing that kind of Tetris game of figuring out how to fit everything in appropriately. You don't want things stacked too high. It makes it difficult to pull something out to do maintenance. You don't want things stacked behind other things. That stinks. So sometimes you get shelving that's too deep and you have more shallow enclosures. It leaves a lot of space up front. So you start stacking things in front of it. That's when you get into hoarder territory. You want to avoid that. So figure out the space you got, figure out the enclosures you were going to use moving ahead, and then try to figure out your shelving or whatever you may be using rack systems early on. That might help you figure out what type of containers you're going to use because you may be on the uh, about which containers you're going to use but you buy a certain shelf and you're like this fits perfectly so things you need to think about as far as feeding schedules this is the one that tends to give a lot of people fits and you need to understand and i'm going to make this very very clear because i've had people ask me about it before if you get up around 100 150 animals honestly if you're taking care of them properly it's a never ending battle you're never going to really get a point where you can go ah, i can just take a week off or so you're constantly feeding watering or cleaning something that needs to be made abundantly clear i recently spoke to a keeper who had gotten basically very deep in the hobby and now he wants to get rid of everything because he basically got to a point where it took the enjoyment away from it he got a bunch of things and now it's like i got to take care of all this stuff and the problem is there are days when i get home from work and i'm exhausted you know i i teach i work with freshmen most of the time it can, they can run you into the ground if you give them the opportunity and then we get home billy and i usually take a four four and a half mile walk or so sometimes hit the weights work out in the garage whatever and then i have to feed so what i try to do is do a certain amount every night so some nights i will do less than others but it's there's rarely a night that i'm not in that room feeding or doing some type of maintenance or watering with something so you need to know that going ahead that these are animals. You can't take weeks off. You can't take months off. You can't go, I just don't feel like doing this for a while. They deserve your attention. They require your attention. And although these are animals that don't require constant maintenance, like a dog or cat or gerbil, and we've gone through that many, many times, they do require a certain level of care. So as far as feeding schedules go, there is an app out there called the Tarantula app, I believe it is, although I've had a difficult time finding it now. I don't know. I interviewed the guy that created it, a really nice dude. Um, a few years back for my website, it was an amazing application. You could track everything, venom potency, where it came from, where you got it, when it molted, when you fed it. It would remind you when you had a feeding schedule. It was fantastic. And if you can find that one for people with smaller collections, I think that works fantastically. It was I, I know it worked for me for a long time. I loved it. I loved taking pictures and loading them up. So I had pictures of each spider on it. It's great, but I will tell you when you get a larger collection, it becomes too much work as far as I'm concerned. I would have my tablet out. I would take something. I would feed it. I'd change the water dish. I'd do this and that. Then I'd have to open the tablet, find the spot, put in what I fed it, put in what I did. It was too much. So what a lot of people end up using, notebooks work great. You write down stuff in notebooks. What I found works really well is if you know how to use Microsoft Excel or the Google spreadsheet, create a spreadsheet that basically has the tarantula's name. 
um, a bunch of columns that you can write dates in. And when you go through, you just put a little check when you feed something. So what happens is I have basically a spreadsheet. It has all my Lazyodora species on it, say. We're doing Lazyodora are getting fed today. I go through. I feed Lazyodora Parahybana 1. I go over to my sheet. I pick up a pen, and I put a check. Simple as that. It takes a second. So you're not fiddling with something, taking time away from feeding. Because I will tell you, you will spend the majority of your time Working with your tarantulas, doing the feedings. Feedings take a long time, especially when you get up around 50, 75, 100 animals. I'm at 200-something right now. Basically, it takes me all week to get through everybody, and then I go right back through it again. I feed my slings twice, so that takes usually midweek. We go back and refeed the slings again. I check my scorpions a little more often. Um, some of my insects and spider, regular spiders I have to feed more often. So that's something you need to keep in mind. And it needs to be something if you're keeping track of feedings and molts that you can do quickly. So what I've done in the past is I've marked down with a simple check if they're feeding or I have a red marker and I'll put a little red dot there if they're in molt so I know they didn't eat but there's a reason they didn't eat. And then if there's something that didn't eat and I'm not sure what's going on, it'll, I'll leave myself a little spot to put some notes. But that tends to work out really well. You can just print out the spreadsheets. You can keep them in a folder somewhere when you eventually run out of room with them. And it's very quick, painless, and doesn't take a lot of setup as long as you know. Actually, you really don't even know. We need to know how to use Excel. You could probably use tables on a Word document and get the same thing. But it's worked very, very well for me. Now, as far as what schedules you should keep, that depends on the keeper. I like to personally do mine once a week, and this is why. When I go in and do my feedings, I also check water dishes. I check for any mold, boluses. I remove those. I clean up some of the poo from some of my arboreals if there's too much of it caked on the side. It allows me to at least once a week. Now, I'm in there with flashlights all the time checking their cages anyway, so it's not like I don't look at them you know, only once a week. But once a week, I think, is a great schedule to allow you to feed them and do your maintenance. That way, if you're doing one once a month, and I know some people keep their adults and they only do them once a month, which is fine. They don't, a lot of these species don't need to eat that often. However, you're still going to have to pull the cage out to check for boluses, to check for water dishes, especially during the winter time when they evaporate super fast. So my theory is why not feed them at the same time? That way you're killing two, three birds with one stone. You pull them out. I pull everybody out once a week. I go through their containers change their water dishes, fill their water dishes, pull out boluses, any you know offensive materials I found in there, check on the welfare of the spider, and that's it. For slings, I like to do twice a week because they need a little more attention, a little more care. That allows you to make sure that their substrate's moist, make sure there's no mold, clear boluses, feed them. I try to get them out of the sling stage as fast as possible and do any maintenance that needs to be done. That's what works really well for me and allows me to keep track of everybody, make sure I'm checking on everybody consistently and constantly. Whatever works for you, that's something you need to figure out as far as feeding schedules. If you have a big uh, collection and you can only get there twice a week, that's fine, but I would make sure you check them at least once a week. Make sure the water dishes are full, make sure they're okay. Basically, just do a general welfare check on your animals to make sure they're doing fine. I think most of us spend a lot of time in the tarantula rooms anyway, staring at them. But opening the cage up, you know, even in some cases that gets a little fresh air in there. I think it, if you can do it once a week, that's a good schedule. But find something that works for you. And again, maintenance schedules. If you feed them once a week, you do two of them together, you kill two birds with one stone perfect as far as I'm concerned. But again, find something that works for you and stick to it. I think the point when some of us get to when they realize we're not able to stick to our own schedules, that's when you got to question whether or not you might have too many. If you set a certain level of care for your animals, you say, I'm going to feed them 
every two weeks and then you pull something out and realize you haven't looked at it in a month and a half, that's a problem. That's where you've got to realize something's got to change. So that's a good way to kind of judge how you're doing with the care. You set your schedule, you stick to your schedule. If you change your schedule, it should be by choice, not because you're forced into it because there's not enough time. If you get to a point where you're having to go from once a week to once every two weeks to once a month, so now you're having a hard time with that, it's time to downsize. You're getting to a point where you're probably not supplying them with the care they require and need. So now you've figured out your space, you have your enclosures, everything's set. Now comes the part that a lot of keepers causes a lot of keepers trouble is the feeding. Where are you going to get your food from? Uh, there was a point where I was spending a lot of money. It was right when I hit about 50 or 60 because I was trying to buy different sizes of things, different roaches. And instead of breeding or raising my own, I was buying some for pet stores. The crickets, a lot of us start with crickets because they're readily available. Most pet stores carry them in usually two or three different sizes at least. But they can become incredibly pricey, especially seeing a lot of places will charge 10 to, in some cases, 15 to 17 cents per cricket, which is absolutely ridiculous. So there's a couple things you can do here. Number one, when you see your collection starting to get large, a lot of folks look into starting roach colonies, whether it be the Turkish red runner roaches, Turkish runners or red runners, or the Bedubia. A lot of people will find that it's time to start the roach colony. So this is something you can do, and you can find roach colonies, starter colonies online. Uh, AaronPauling.com sells a lot of roaches. You can just pick up some, have them ready. They're very easy to set up. All you need really is a Tupperware container, some egg cartons, something to put the food in. We make our own food. We use oats, grind up oats, a little bit of fish food, and I believe we use cornmeal and throw it in. You can also use fresh fruits, vegetables. I'm not going to turn this into a whole thing on how to take care of roaches because it'll just that should be a separate entity into itself. But that's something to consider. Roaches or even mealworms, superworms, people will raise those as well. All of those are very easy to raise overall and will keep a supply of different size items to feed your tarantulas. I don't encourage people to start doing the colonies when they've only got a handful of tarantulas because you're going to get more than you need very, very quickly. And then you're going to end up having to give them away or just spending a lot of time maintaining your roach colonies. So definitely look into that. Also, if you don't want to raise your own, maybe a lot of people, their significant others are okay with the tarantulas but don't want the roaches in the house some places you can't get the roaches certain types i know in florida you can't get the red runners one thing you can do is buy bulk for crickets and such i actually like using crickets for my arboreals i i've always liked using the crickets for the arboreals because my piece of theory at least they munch on them really well the crickets move they jump around they climb and they tend to get them a lot faster than some of the roaches where you have to either crush their heads to drop them in there and hope they find them or some of them will burrow or run I like the crickets for that. So I have people go, why don't you use all roaches? I do have two roach, three roach colonies. I also have a hisser colony and I do use those quite a bit, but I also like to break in the crickets. So if you do buy crickets, you can go to eBay. There are places that sell them. You can buy them at 100, 150, 200, 500, 1,000 and have them on hand. They deliver them right to your door. I've had great luck with this new company that I've been using off of eBay where it's 18 bucks. I get 500 of them, usually once a month to supplement my roaches and it's been great. So it's not that much money. 20 bucks a month isn't that bad for keeping care of, uh, taking care of this many animals and I find it very convenient. So that's something you can look into as well. But you do want to scout out ahead of time. When you see yourself getting 25, 50, it's starting to grow. You want to figure out what you're going to do for food. Consider starting your own roach colony. I would say if you're getting up around 25 or so and you got some adults, it's time to look at that. And then consider doing a variety of things because I have found that certain tarantulas won't eat certain prey items. I have a T-stermy male that will not touch roaches. He'll gobble up crickets like no, like it's nobody's business. I can drop in 10 of them. 
of them, he'll grab, grab them all up. I drop in one roach, he tiptoes around it. So keep in mind, you may have to get other things for some of them, but the majority of them will eat the roaches. They're convenient. They're easy to take care of as long as you keep them warm and make sure there's enough for them to drink in there. You know, putting in the fresh fruits and vegetables help, misting the side. Make sure they don't dry out because I found that they won't die if they dry out, but they won't produce as prolifically. But Get a roach collie, you'll have everything you need. I particularly like the red runners because the adult sizes are like a large cricket size, and the little ones are great for slings, even the tinier ones, so you don't have to worry about doing the whole pre-kill thing. But definitely, if you see that collection starting to explode, it's time to probably start producing, as long as it's permissible, your own prey items for your tarantulas. Now, Last but not least, how do you track things? Well, we kind of talked earlier about having the spreadsheet as far as tracking feedings and things of that nature. But sometimes you're in the middle of doing something in the room and you notice something and you're like, man, I got to remember to do that later. I will tell most people, my advice I would give is to get yourself one of those dry erase boards. The white ones, you can get them on Amazon for like 18 bucks or 15 bucks. You can get them in, you know, Staples or whatever they sell office supplies. I'm used to using them as a teacher, but get one of those that you can mount in the room because I'll tell you, nothing's better than you look in, you're, it's the end of the night, you're in there with a flashlight and you go, oh gosh, this one's got some mold in it. You go over to the thing, you write mold and LP container to remind yourself that you have to clean it. Or maybe somebody's in primo, you can jot down notes again on that whiteboard. I personally found it to be invaluable because sometimes you notice stuff in an inopportune time. We, When we have to leave the house, we go through my tarantula room, and I'm usually sitting there while the kids are getting ready, looking into the cages. Sometimes I'll notice something. I'm like, ooh, i got to remember to do this. So you can jot yourself notes. It works perfectly. It's a big visual reminder. You get different color markers and everything. It works great for me. So something you may want to consider if that's, you know, if you keep them in a place where you can mount one of those on your wall. And they're rather inexpensive, very, very convenient. Another thing I've used is sticky notes or post-it notes. You have a, can go to feed one of your tarantulas. It's not eating. You realize it's in pre-molt. You write the date on it. You write pre-molt. And that way you can track when it molted. You can stick them on the side of the enclosure. So if you don't want them to look unsightly or have people come in and see a bunch of post-it notes coming, you know, hanging off your containers, they're easily hidden. But it makes it very easy to remember, all right, I don't have to feed this one this time. Because a lot of the times you're doing the feedings, you kind of get in this robot mode where you're pulling things out and feeding them and you get something out. You open it up. You drop a cricket in. You're like, oh, gosh, this one's still in pre-molt. I shouldn't have done that. Now you have to fish the cricket out. Using the post-it notes is a great way to just kind of quickly jot down some notes, a date, a time, whatever it may be. Stick it right to the side of the enclosure, and then you have it. I've also used different types of colored tape before. I used to have a little roll of red, like masking tape, that when something was in pre-molt or something needed to be rehoused, I would take that, rip a piece off, and just stick it in the corner of the enclosure as a visual reminder that I had to either not bother feeding that one, or later on I just used it for ones that were I needed to rehouse for a visual reminder that I need to rehouse this one soon. And again, that way you walk into the tarantula room, you're trying to figure out, hey, you know what, I got a Saturday afternoon, I'll do some work in here, what do I got to do? You walk in, you see a couple red pieces of tape like oh that's right I got some rehousings to do so those are all ways little tricks that worked really well for me especially the post-it notes I love those you can get them in different colors as well to signify different things so it just makes it visually a lot faster than scanning 100 150 containers trying to figure out all right which one was in primo which one do I have to feed now which one just ate which one do I need to try again in a couple days because it just molted? All that kind of information you can quickly jot down. And again, any type of data tracking you do, it needs to be fast and efficient. You don't want to spend more time writing notes than you do taking care of your tarantulas. Feeding should become something that is fun 
and that flows. And, and I think hopefully people that do feedings here get what I'm saying here. You get to a point where you get – when you're doing the feedings, you know exactly what you're doing. You have your different prey open, open, ready to go, and it becomes like a systematic thing where you open up, you drop in the prey, clean out the water dish, take out the bolus, on to the next one. And you want it to have that flow to it. You don't want it to be like, open it up. Oh, this one's in pre-malt. Let me go out and get my computer. All right, blah, blah, is in pre-malt now. I think it's been two days. This is the date. It refused a cricket. By that time, you've wasted 10 minutes where you could be feeding. It's all about keeping things streamlined and efficient so that you're not wasting your time and so that working with these animals doesn't become a chore. That's when people start feeling overwhelmed. That's when you start, you know, second-guessing getting so, so many animals. And that's when the hobby becomes stressful. And that's what we want to avoid completely. We want the hobby to be fun. We want feeding times to be a fun thing where you watch your animals eat. That's always exciting. Where you clean the enclosures, where you pull out molts and go, oh my gosh, let me go sex this one, see what I got. It should be a fun time. Once it starts to become a burden, that's when things take a downhill turn. That's when people start going, oh, well, you know what? I really don't feel like I'm going to go home and crack a beer and I'm not going to bother working with the tarantulas tonight. And then the next day, oh, well, I got some stuff going on. They'll be fine. I'll get to them. It should never become like that. If it does become like that, and then it's time to be a responsible keeper and figure out what to do about it. Do you need to downsize? That's something a lot of people end up doing. And I think it's a perfectly intelligent move when you realize you've got more than you can take care of. If that's a point, if you get to a point where you've done these things and you're still having a hard time keeping up with it and it's becoming a chore and you're getting that feeling of stress and anxiety when you have to do something with them, it shouldn't be like that. If you find that happening, now it's time to sit down and figure out where do you go from here. You downsize, do you, some people even get out of the hobby and that's a shame. I talked to a guy, you know, not too long ago, again, that got overburdened and it became a stressor for him. He said, I just can't with work going on everything. I just don't have the time and energy to come home and deal with all these things. And he hadn't really been in it that long. So he burned out very quickly. You don't want that. You want to make sure that you, you know, monitor where you're going, monitor how many you're pulling in. Don't be one of those people that goes from having one to 50 in a couple months and then realizes they're completely overwhelmed. Give it some thought ahead of time. Slow yourself down. Have your spouse slow you down. I run everything I buy by Billy, not because, you know, she's in charge of me, but because sometimes she can be like, well, is that a good idea right now? Do we really need more right now? Do you have room for 20 more? Things of that nature. Just have somebody that you can run things by so you make sure that maybe if you're not using your head, your spouse or significant other can help use their head to keep you out of trouble. But again, I think it's all about planning ahead of time, making sure that you know what kind of space you have, that you start figuring out what you're going to use for the enclosures, that you figure out your shelving, find feeding schedule that works for you and stick to it. If you're not sticking to it, it's time to consider why you're not sticking to it. Is it because you've decided it was too aggressive or because you've been backed into a corner and just don't have the time to keep up with it? If that's the case, maybe you need to consider slowing down a bit. And then I think coming up with your own feeders basically producing your own feeders is going to be a huge help to people with larger collections because it can be very costly to buy all this stuff monthly or weekly especially if you get a bunch of different sizes i will say the crickets if you're ordering bulk the problem is you would have to buy bulk large you'd have to buy bulk small you'd have to buy bulk medium and that can be very pricey and they can be difficult to keep alive so you want to make sure you know what you're going to be using for feeders to save yourself some money there and then make sure you come down come up with a really good system for tracking what's going on in your room again I like visual things like the post-it notes the different color tape having the white dry erase board those all work very well for me but find something that works for you because that helps alleviate stress when you feel like you're in control, you know what's going on, there are no surprises. It's when you start feeling out of control or things are out of your hand that causes a lot of anxiety and can ruin the hobby for you. 
So there we go. I think that about covers that one. If other people have other techniques and things they use to keep track of their collections, please chime in because I do not have all the answers and I don't pretend to have all the answers. I get a lot of things from other hobbyists and I learn a lot from talking to other people and finding out what works for them. I will try to put a link in the in the description of this one for the tarantula app if i can find it out there i had a hard time finding it last time but i think you can still find it if you look on arachnoboard so i'll see if i can find that link for people that are interested in checking that one out but again thanks so much for listening if you want check out my website tomsbigspiders.com or check out my youtube channel again tomsbigspiders.com where i post a lot of videos up there i will be throwing this one up on facebook so people can comment i actually forgot to put one up a couple weeks ago and people mentioned that there was no real place for them to comment on it, so I'll make sure I do that. Sometimes I just get carried away and forget between the videos and the podcasts and the uh, website stuff, so this all make sure it gets up there. But again, I appreciate the comments and the feedback, and thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch everybody next time.